All right, let's have a Bible study. We get the privilege of studying God's Word this morning. So Matthew chapter 21, if you'll turn there, we've gone as far as verse 33. Our verse-by-verse study through Matthew, we will continue to do so on Sunday mornings till we get through with Matthew's Gospel. You remember that when Jesus was in the beginning of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that when he gave that sermon, um, was called the Sermon on the Mount, the longest teaching of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. And when Jesus finished that teaching, we read that the people marveled at his saying, saying he teaches as one having authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. And now here they come challenging his authority. So, Father, we do ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. I pray that we would remember, let's check those, those ringers on our phones. We, we want to be free from distractions. We have a few moments, a relatively short time, to be in your word, to be together, to corporately receive from you that all scripture we know is inspired, God breathed, put to the page here. And Lord, we want to hear from you. Lord, we want to be taught by you. And we desire to receive from you. So Lord, bless this time as we study your word. Help us to be a people that are teachable right now. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we open up chapter 21, we saw that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the back of a foal of a donkey. And he goes into the temple and he drives out those who sold and bought in the temple and the sacrifices. And he overturned the money changers' tables. And he would bring rebuke to the religious leaders that were overseeing all of that activity at Passover. And in his rebuke to them, he would say, It is written that my house shall be called a house of prayer, quoting from Isaiah, but you made it a den of thieves. That this is my father's house, and my house shall be a house of prayer. You've made it into a place where you are robbing the people. You are cheating the people. You are taking advantage of the people. And what a scene that must have been. And then the children, as we have seen traveling through chapter 21, that they, they have been crying out to Jesus in the temple, Hosanna, which means save now, and to the son of David. He's bringing healing to the people, those who couldn't see and those who couldn't walk. And we also know that he's teaching there as well. Well, the religious elite, the religious leaders are very angry. They're upset with him. They're indignant is what Matthew writes. And the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful works that he was doing in the temple. So last time we read how they would come to Jesus when he's teaching the people. They would interrupt him. They did it on purpose. They did it publicly. They said, by what authority are you doing these things? And second of all, who gave you this authority? And we know that Jesus has already told them from John's gospel that I do nothing apart from my father. I only do the works of my father. I came from heaven. They would not accept that. So they come to him. They say, by what authority and who gave you this authority? And you've done all of this. We demand to know by who and what authority you are doing these things. And they saw themselves, the religious leaders, as the only authority in the land. And Jesus, he said, I'll answer your question, but let me ask you this first. You would need to answer me. The ministry of John the Baptist, the one that was out there, the forerunner to the Messiah, he would say, I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. And he would say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
He spoke of Jesus. He pointed to Jesus and, and him out there in the wilderness wearing camel skins and, and eating locusts. It, was his ministry from God? Was it from heaven? Or was it just some guy out there in the wilderness doing his own thing? And because they didn't want to answer, they didn't want to upset you know, the people who were listening there. Remember that Jesus is with the crowd here that is listening to this conversation that's going on between the religious leaders and Jesus. And because of fear of them, they said, we're not going to answer. And so Jesus said, neither will I answer you. But he does answer them indirectly. And he begins to tell a couple parables that would explain to them his authority. That, that my authority, first of all, from the Father, the authority of the Father, as he gives a parable of two sons. And in that parable, as he gives that parable, he talks about the son who said he would do what the Father wanted. He gave lip service, but he was disobedient. And Jesus likened that son to the religious leaders. Remember that we read in the chapter that Jesus, after the cleansing of the temple, he went to Bethany. He left Jerusalem for the night. He lodged there probably at the house of Mary Lazarus and Martha, that family. And he was coming back and he saw the fig tree. The fig tree, it's early in the morning and it didn't have any fruit. It had lots of leaves and he cursed the fig tree. And looking at that, we saw that it was symbolic of a nation, of the religious system that was leafy, but there was no fruit unto God, just as there was no fruit on that fig tree. And Jesus, as he tells that parable to them, he would say that you guys are the one that are disobedient. The one who said that he ended up doing what the Father wanted him to do, he's like in the one that enters into the kingdom of heaven. And it's interesting. Let me read it to you again in verse 31. He says, Surely I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. What do you think was the reaction of those religious leaders when they heard that? That must have stung when they heard that. What do you mean, that Tax collectors and harlots, the worst of the worst, are going to enter into the kingdom of God before us. We're the authority of the land. We are the ones that are the chosen people. We are worthy. We keep the traditions. We have all the religiousness going on. What do you mean? So Jesus, speaking of the authority of the Father, now as we pick up our text, he tells the parable of the wicked vine dresser, speaking of the authority of the Son. Let's begin to read it. Verse 33 of chapter 21. They hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. In verse 37, Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Interesting, verse 41, They said to him, So they're answering the question of what will he do, the owner, and he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to another vine dresser who will render to him the fruits of their seasons. 
So as we read this, Jesus, again, not answering their question directly about his authority, they come and demanding all of that and what he has been doing in the temple and who and what authority. But he gives another parable here. And the parable is about a wicked vine dresser, as we read, who would beat and stone and kill the servants of the owner that were sent to them. And he sends his son, and they end up killing him. And I think that the religious leaders hearing this parable from Jesus, they, they know what this parable means. Uh, they answered the question that Jesus said, what's going to happen you know, to the vine dressers? But in Israel at this time, if you had a lot of acreage, you would oftentimes lend your acreage to a husbandman, kind of like sharecropping. And we see an example, it's mentioned that in the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. But it, it was different in that sharecroppers would give a percentage of the harvest to the owner. Different arrangements were made in ancient Israel. And what you would do is you would agree to, in advance, how much of the vintage you would give to the owner. So if you had a, a good year, lots of grapes, lots of fruit that was produced, you ended up doing well. But if it was a bad year where there wasn't a lot of fruit that was produced, you didn't make out so well. And the religious leaders, they knew what he was talking about in this parable because this kind of practice was not uncommon. And spiritually, the religious leaders know that Jesus is making reference to them and the nation. How do we know that? We're going to read that at the end of the chapter. That they perceive, they know that Jesus is talking about them. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 8, they, they knew the scriptures. They would think back to you have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. When you read Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Hosea, which speaks about how Israel is a vineyard unto the Lord. And in a couple days, we're going to, you know, you can read where Jesus in John chapter 15, he would tell his disciples that I am the vine, the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So their minds are, are thinking of these things and also that they would be thinking back to the fifth chapter of Isaiah, which I made reference to before, but let me read it to you. And Isaiah is speaking to the nation that has rebelled uh, against the Lord, their idol worship and false teachers that were on the scene, the sin that they were involved in. So Isaiah is speaking about God's disappointing vineyard. I'll read it to you in chapter 5 of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So the vineyard representing the nation of Israel at this time here as Isaiah is on the scene, the choicest vines were planted. There was a hedge that was all around it. There was good soil, plenty of water, wine press that was put in the middle of it. Um, and in other words, everything was put in place for there to be a beautiful, very wonderful, fruitful vineyard. It was God's vineyard, the well-beloved and it was expected to bring forth good grapes, but it didn't. It only produced wild grapes. 
And you can go back and you can read that chapter as Isaiah is speaking the words of the Lord. God said that I will take away its hedge. I'm going to break down its wall. I'm going to lay it to waste and command that there be no rain that would be on that vineyard. And the prophet Isaiah was speaking about how God has set apart the nation of Israel that it might bring fruit unto God. Just as you and I, that we are to produce fruit in our lives unto God. We've talked about what that fruit is in our previous studies. They failed to do so. I think the religious leaders, again, knowing that Jesus is making reference to them, the nation of Israel, God's vineyard, and the servants were sent to the vineyard where the prophets of God were rejected by the people and the religious leaders. We have seen that in Isaiah's day. Then came Jeremiah, Ezekiel at the same time. When we go through the minor prophets, we will see that as well. They here, as Jesus is telling this parable, here is the vine dressers able to work the vineyard for the generous owner. But they turned against him and they beat the servants. And normally the owner, you would think, would not respond favorably right away, would put an end to that. And it really is an incredible picture that is here, that Jesus is giving of a gracious, loving father. He sends other servants. I mean, they beat one. They, they stoned another. They killed one. Isaiah, who would give that, that message of the disappointing vineyard of God, that he ended up, it is believed, that he was sawn in half by Manasseh. He would continue to send his servants. And the people listening here, remember he's teaching at the temple, they would think, wow, what kind of owner would do that? So patient, so long-suffering. That he would do that. But then he would send his only son. And when they see his works and the wonderful works that he does, surely they're going to receive him. Verse 37, they'll respect my son. When they saw him, though, they said, this is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So Jesus is predicting his death at their hands. He is telling them, I know what you want to do with me. I know that you want to put me to death. So Jesus posed the question to the religious leaders, what would the owner do to the unfaithful vine dressers? He wasn't going to let them continue to operate the vineyard, but pronounce that the judgment would be serious, verse 41, as we read. They, as I mentioned, they answered their own, the question that Jesus gave to them. And I spoke about that again in previous studies, and last time I believe we were together, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, of course, in, in chapter 21, all four Gospels mention that. In Luke's account of it, we know that Jesus wept over Jerusalem, and he said that your city is laid to you desolate, that they're going to build an embankment around you, and they're going to dash your children. There's going to be death and destruction and devastation. Not one stone will be left upon another. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD as the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, broke through the walls, they tore that magnificent temple down to where not one stone was left upon another. Josephus writes 1.1 million Jews were killed at that time. 100,000 were taken off into captivity. We know that they were dispersed throughout the nations. It's interesting that Luke, in this account that we read, that Jesus is telling this parable, that they responded by saying, certainly not. No way. Certainly not. It doesn't apply to us. 
the same response that the religious leaders and the civil leaders gave when it came to the prophets coming concerning the Babylonian captivity, right? If you join us on Wednesday night. Here is Jeremiah. He's in Jerusalem. He is ministering the word of the Lord to the leaders. There's Ezekiel that is ministering to particularly the elders, the religious leaders. Daniel's in Babylon at the same time. They're speaking of destruction that would come, particularly Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And here's Jeremiah saying, don't rebel against Babylon. If you do, there's going to be death, devastation, destruction like you've never seen before. And you need to repent from your idol worship. There's idols all over the temple. Ezekiel tells us how in chapters 9 and 10 of Ezekiel, how the glory of the Lord would depart from the temple and, and depart over the, the Mount of Olives. And there was sin. They were listening to the false prophets. They had a false hope, listening to a false message that they would say that the captivity is not going to be 70 years, as Jeremiah predicted. It's only going to be a few more years. And, and the captives are going to come back. Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall. And nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem because we have the temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. They put their trust in a building rather than putting their trust in the Lord. I find that there's some of the same reactions today when it comes to the return of the Lord. There's going to be no tribulation period. There's going to be no pouring out God's wrath in a Christ-rejected world. Hey, what's popular today and what's growing in evangelical Christianity today uh, very, very quickly is new apostolic reformation. There's nothing new about it. Kingdom now theology. Manifested sons of God theology that's been around for many, many years. That the church is going to grow and grow. And there's going to be super apostles and prophets. And we're going to move out in great power. And we're going to heal people of sickness. And we're going to take over the civil authorities. And we're going to take over basically the world. And then we're going to usher in the kingdom. It all sounds good. It sounds pleasing to the flesh. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, if I had not come back and those days were not cut short, man would have destroyed himself. Man would have destroyed himself. He says that there's going to be great tribulations such as the world has never seen or ever will see again. The Bible talks about the time of Jacob's trouble. We know that there is a time coming ahead where God is going to pour out his wrath on a, a Christ-rejected world. But for you and for me, the church... He promises that he'll take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth that will test those who dwell on the face of the earth. That he has a plan for us. That we're going to be taken out before that final seven years called Daniel's 70th week. We'll talk about it more specifically when we get to the Olivet Discourse, when we study the book of Daniel after we get done with Matthew. I want you to be discerning of the days in which we are in. Because I am amazed how people are calling me and emailing me and saying to me, you know what, we're being told there is no rapture. We're being told that there is no tribulation period. We're being told there is no millennium reign. We're being told that we don't need to be discerning of the days in which we are in. Remember that it was earlier in Matthew that Jesus said to the religious leaders, you can discern the signs of the sky, the weather, but you can't discern the coming of the Son of Man? So here's Jesus in this parable. 
that he said that he would lease his vineyard to the other vine dressers who would render to him the fruits of their season. Who are they, the other vine dressers? Well, a couple of thoughts to consider. Some commentators, Bible teachers, say that Jesus is referring to the kingdom that had been taken away from the Jewish nation and given to the Gentile nations who would produce fruit. And we know that that would be the gospel that would go to the Gentile nations. Others say that Jesus is specifically speaking to the church. The word nation in verse 43, which we're going to read here in a few minutes, given to a nation bearing fruit. The word nation is singular. The church is called a nation in Romans chapter 10, verse 19. First Peter chapter 2, we're called a holy nation. But remember that the kingdom has not been taken away completely from Israel forever. Blindness has come to Israel in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, Romans chapter 11. You've been with us studying the Old Testament and Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. We'll continue to see going through the minor prophets that there's many verses concerning God's restoration, not only physically of the nation of Israel, but spiritually, that they're going to be restored. He said, I will bring it to pass. That's what we're reading about in Ezekiel right now. The millennial temple is a part of that, that will be standing God's temple there in the millennium reign on God's holy mountain, the Levites, the priest, all of that. That's our future. You know, I have to be honest with you. When I first was entering into, when we got done, Ezekiel 36 and 37, that speaks of a nation being born once again. And we all love Ezekiel 38 and 39, right? Which could be the next major war in the Middle East. And then at the end of chapter 39, that God pours out his spirit on Israel. And in chapters 40 through 48, you see that there is the millennium temple that is mentioned there. And in that, I think, oh, why? There's a lot of cupids, you know, details and porches and, and gates that are mentioned there. But as I began to look at it, I think, wow, this is our future. This should excite us. It was certainly exciting to Ezekiel because Ezekiel had given all those, those you know, chapters of judgment, 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 and all of a sudden him being a priest, he sees the millennial temple, which is going to be magnificent, and the waters that flow from the altar going west and east, healing the waters of the land, and the glory of the Lord will fill that temple, the Lord himself. That's our future, and it should excite us. But as we talk about the temple, the Bible speaks of five temples. You say five. First temple, Solomon, destroyed by the Babylonians. Second temple, destroyed by Rome, 70 AD. The tribulation temple, that will be destroyed at the end of the tribulation period because it's a temple that was desecrated. The millennial temple, that's four. Trivial here, what's the fifth temple? It's you and me. And that's what Peter writes about. Peter writes about that in his book. He writes about how we are a holy nation, that we are living stones, that we are being put together. I think that as we look at this, that, that a simple interpretation of what Jesus is referring to is that whoever belongs to the kingdom are believers in Jesus. Because we are the ones that are going to bear fruit. He's the vine. We are the branches. And Jesus in this parable is giving them the answer. And he is saying, here's my authority. My father is the owner of the vineyard. I'm the rightful heir to it. I'm the beloved son whom the father has sent. You've killed the prophets. You beat those who have come from God. And now here I am. And eventually you're going to have me killed. 
And I know what you're going to do. I know what you're going to do to me. It has been ordained before the foundations of the world. But what will the owner do to the vine dressers in their rebellion that has proved to be over and over again? They didn't want to hear the truth. They were more concerned about their status and their pomp and their traditions and their authority that they thought they had and their status, their religiousness, their outward appearance. They were more concerned about that than having true relationship with God and producing fruit for God. Perhaps you grew up in a religious tradition. I know that I did. My parents, my grandparents, I loved them. You know, cousins, the whole, had a big family. Maybe you grew up in a religious tradition, had friends, family members. They were there for a long time. And then all of a sudden, you heard the gospel. Some of you, you have this testimony. You heard the gospel, and you responded to Jesus. And then you told them that I'm born again. I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. You need to come to Jesus. You need to come to him. What do you mean I need to come to Jesus? I go to church. You need to read the Bible. We have scripture that has spoken to us, that's quoted in scripture. We have these religious traditions. We have the holy sacraments. We've been baptized. We've been confirmed in the church and all of this. Some of you have experienced this, but you need Jesus because we understand that religion won't save anyone. It's Jesus that saves. And understanding that we are sinners that need to be forgiven and that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So Jesus says in this parable, what should the owner of the vineyard do to the vine dressers? Well, they will be judged and the vineyard given to another. And they say, God forbid that that should ever happen. And then verse 42, Jesus said to them, Luke's gospel says he looked at them. Do you think he looked at them probably with a pretty intense look? Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him the powder. Jesus saying, having you read, knowing darn well they had, he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, that very psalm that they had sung during his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus here referring to himself as the chief cornerstone you have rejected me. And Peter, again, he quotes this in Acts chapter 4, day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, 3,000 got saved. Going to Acts chapter 3, he heals a man there at the temple. He preaches again. Uh, 2,000 more get saved. You go into chapter 4, the chief priests, uh, they are hearing about Jesus' resurrection. They're upset. They arrest him. They bring him before the religious council. They said, by what power do you do these things? Whose name do you do these things? And Peter, with boldness, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he would say, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus. And you have rejected him. And it would be later that Peter would write about the church, the Christians who are being persecuted and looked down upon and and being, you know, uh, cast down. 
but letting them know that you have a privileged and blessed status in Jesus. Will you please remember that, Calvary? That today in this life, in this culture, in this world, that the world's going to look down on us, come down and, and, and come against us and not have favor for us and will persecute us, but understand that you have a privileged and blessed status in Jesus Christ. And Peter would write in chapter 2 of his first epistle, you came to Christ as to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, one being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures. Behold, that I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This world will come against you and me. I think that will increase as we get closer to the return of the Lord. I pray for a revival, spiritual awakening in our nation. But I also know this, that we have a privileged status and we are living stones coming together as a holy habitation. And that's why it's so important we need each other to encourage each other, build each other up, pray for each other. You keep coming. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church, he would say that the gospel that I was sent to preach, a stumbling stone to the Jews, a stumbling block, in Daniel chapter 2, in the uh, image of Nebuchadnezzar that represented Gentile nations, that the stone came, a smiting stone, smite that image in the feet, and it all crumbled to the Gentiles, a smiting stone. But for you and for me, we're living stones brought together to this holy habitation, precious to God, holy, and he's the chief cornerstone. And as we see that Jesus says in verse 44, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. The one who falls on me is going to be broken. If you're going to be a Christian, listen, you must fall before him. You must be broken in the presence of him. You must admit that you are a sinner and that you are in need of the Savior, Jesus. But if you don't fall on him and be broken before him, he says, I'm going to fall on you and grind you to powder. So we have a choice. Either be broken before him today or be broken by him throughout eternity. Now, sometimes people don't like that. Again, another popular, you know, and progressive theology in, in, in the church is there's no hell. Just live any way you want. God is love. Believe whatever it is that you want. Jesus spoke more on hell than he did on heaven. Eternal separation from him for those who reject him is real. The great white throne is real. The lake of fire is real. And you have a choice whether you're going to receive his love and forgiveness that is provided for you on Calvary's cross or not. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is when? Now, a vast majority of you have done it in brokenness before him, and you are saved. You belong to him. You're living stones. 
If not, you will do it later when it's too late. And you will be damned. I don't like to talk about it, but it is something I have a responsibility to teach God's word and to say that hell is real. So Jesus came to set the record straight. And he's using this analogy saying, hey, if you're not repenting, realize this, that I am a fulfillment of Psalm 118. You've rejected me, that I am the cornerstone. And if you're not broken before me, whoever the stone falls on will grind him to powder. But he loves you. And that's why he went to the cross for you. So that that you wouldn't be eternally separated from him. Because the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of eternal life comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. They got the message. They knew, those religious elite, that he was referring to them. And they were desperately wanting to arrest him at this point, but because of the popular acclaim at this point, time of the people they didn't do it they were afraid of the people and Jesus is not through with them he's going to give one more parable when we move into next week into chapter 22 he's going to tell a parable of a wedding feast indirectly again answering them about his authority and so father we thank you that Jesus comes these words are recorded for all eternity because heaven and earth will pass away but Jesus said, my words will never pass away. And I thank you that he came to, because he is truth. He is the way, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That we can come and receive his love, his provision, eternal life, forgiveness of sin that was provided on that cross as he hung between heaven and earth. Dying for our sins, going through unimaginable sufferings, and was laid into a tomb and he rose again after three days, conquering sin and death, proving, validating what he did on the cross. And I know that those in this building, vast, vast majority, maybe even all, that you've come to Christ by faith. But if there is anyone here that you have not listened, have you come to Jesus and called upon his name for salvation? Have you humbled yourself and realized that you need to come and admit that you are a sinner and need the forgiveness that he provided on the cross? That he loves you so much that he desires to sit upon the throne of your heart as your personal Lord and Savior because He is the Lord of Lords. He is the King of Kings. And He's the only one that can save you. You can't save yourself. A church can't save you. Trying to be a good person. Maybe you're even here and you think, well, I don't even try to be a good person. I've fallen so short. I've sinned so much. He died for all of your sins. He says, come. The invitation is always to come and call out to Him. Repent is what he says. It just means turn direction. Quit going the direction you're going and turn to him for salvation and forgiveness. He loves you. He wants to give you a new life, a new heart, a new beginning. 
bring you into the family of God. Bring you into true relationship with the Father that only comes through the Son, Jesus. Will you come and call on the name of the Lord this morning? Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is a promise to you. And if you're listening to this message, whether you're here in this place or you're listening online, don't turn off, turn off, turn off your device. If you're listening on the radio, don't turn it off. If you're not right with God, get right. Come to Jesus. He loves you. He loves you so much. That's why he came and died for you, specifically, individually. This world is going to come to a disastrous end. But when you come to Christ, you'll be in the world, but you're not of the world. You belong to a kingdom that will last forever. And in your heart, you can pray, Jesus, I come right now. I hear the invitation to call upon your name, and I do that. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me, and you're alive speaking to me. And I ask that you would rule as my personal Lord and Savior. And I do thank you for bringing me into the family of God, for this new beginning, for giving me and having a relationship with the Father through you. And I want to walk with you and know you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. And for all of us as we leave this place, that we would be a light in the darkness. Lord, that you would help us when the world comes against us. Jesus said, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So you would strengthen us and give us wisdom. Stand on your promises. That we would encourage one another in the days in which we're in. Be wise, be discerning. And Lord, that we would just lift each other up. That we would love one another. And that fruit would bear, be born from our hearts as we abide in you. So Lord, bless everyone now as we go our way. In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Would you please stand?